All right, Revelation chapter 11. <laughs> what you talking about back there, boy? Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be okay. All right. Revelation chapter 11, we'll read the, um, we'll read the entire chapter. <clears throat> it says, Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise up and measure the temple of God. Measure the altar and measure those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for forty-two months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for twelve hundred and sixty days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the, whole, of the whole earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. And if anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they so desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some of the people and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents, because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and they worshiped God, saying, we give thanks to You, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, because You have taken Your great power and You have begun to reign. The nations raged, but Your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged came. And the time for rewarding Your servants and the prophets and the saints came. And those who fear Your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the Ark of the Covenant was seen within His temple. 
There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. Tonight, we get the privilege of looking at what is arguably the most difficult passage and chapter in all the Bible to interpret. There are many different interpretations here. Um, and there would be some, I, even myself, that in the past have shied away from this because there are so many different ways to see it. And um, I, I have very respected teachers that I follow that have taught on this passage, and many of them disagree in the way that this is to be interpreted. And I can see an understanding from a lot of them on why they interpret it the way that they do. But the Bible does tell us that there is a blessing in reading this, that God will bless us for our attempts to get into it. But keep in mind that this is what they call apocalyptic um, literature. This is a type of writing that is meant to both reveal truth and at the same time it's meant to hide truth. And so what we have in here is a mix. These are people that God has inspired to be able to talk about events that are going to happen in a way that both reveals it to a certain... that both um, hides it to a certain degree and at the same time to the right ones that read it and the Holy Spirit gives the ability to be able to understand it. They are able to understand it. And we see this types of writing in um, other places. Ezekiel, there are a lot of places in Ezekiel that are apocalyptic literature and that style of writing. There are places in Zechariah. I, I want to say the majority of Zechariah is um, apocalyptic style writings. Daniel, many, much of Daniel's writings are in apocalyptic style. And so... Um, I don't want you to be discouraged if um, some of this is confusing to you tonight. It's okay. We're going to do our best to take it a little at a time, try to put it in its proper context, and just understand it to the best that the Holy Spirit gives us the ability to do so. Can we all agree to do that tonight? All right. So if you walk away from here tonight going, wow, I just don't really... It's okay. It's all right. Maybe now ain't the time that the Holy Spirit is, is going to reveal everything to you. And as we saw from, not last week, but the week before study, God doesn't always share everything with us. Sometimes He shows us things and then He says, um, I'm not going to tell you exactly what this means. Uh, sometimes God shares it with somebody and, and He says, hey, don't reveal that just yet. And so there are things that that at some points in our lives that God may show us that we may not necessarily be meant to understand it fully at that time. And so again, if you fall in that category tonight, by the time we leave, don't get discouraged with this. I remember um, whenever we first started studying Revelation, there was a young lady that was here that was brand new in this thing. And we went into Daniel chapter 9 looking at the numbers and the math and everything. And whenever we walked out of here that night, I'm sitting here, my head is just spinning and I'm going, I don't know if she will ever come back. <laughs> I mean, it, it, so I don't want anybody to walk out of here tonight looking at it because all the Bible is not this way. But tonight we have a difficult passage. And so we're going to take it just a little at a time. And I'm going to be honest with you. I'm, in the way I'm going to teach it tonight, I'm not dogmatic in it. 
I'm not just going to sit here and tell you that yes, the way I'm going to interpret it for you tonight is exactly the way it is and you better believe it this way. I don't know this. But I do believe that in the proper context and when we put the pieces together that I'm going to teach it in the best way that I have been able to understand this. And so with that being said, I want to remind you that um, you remember when we had the sixth seal and the seventh seal? There was an interlude between the two. The sixth seal was open, and then before the seventh seal was open, John gets another vision of 144,000 Jews. Remember, he asked the question, who can survive this? How is anybody going to make it past this? And then he gets a vision of 144,000 Jews, and basically what we have there was we, we learned that God had a plan for Israel, remember? And so... 144,000 Jews were saved at and sealed at this point for the purpose of ministering to the world the way the Apostle Paul did. And what we find out is that in the second part of chapter 7, before the seventh seal is opened, we see that the result of their ministry is that many people of all types of nations and tribes and tongues are saved. And what we have is a celebration in heaven of a multitude that can't even be numbered. And so what you get between the sixth seal and the seventh seal, you get a vision of the ministry that's going to take place, especially concerning Israel, how that affects the world during this time, and then you get a vision into heaven as to what takes place after that ministry. All right? The reason that's important is because here we have the same thing taking place between the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet. God pauses for a moment between those two and He gives a vision of the ministry of what I believe concerns Israel primarily because all this is we're going to see takes place in Jerusalem. We, we know that this is the time that a covenant has been made with the Jews, that they're going to be able to sacrifice, that they're going to be able to worship the way that they used to be able to. And so we know some context about what's happening in this time period. But I want you to, um, I want you to look first off at, at just a few things to remind you why I believe this focus is primarily on Israel. Look at Romans chapter 11, verse uh, 1 through 5. And I'd like for you to turn there if you can and see what I'm, what I'm talking about here. I'm just going to read a few scriptures to you to remind you that um, right now, God has put a partial blindness over ethnic Israel. Everybody know what I mean when I say ethnic Israel? Um, physical Israel. Abraham's physical seed. Right now, they have a partial blindness, a partial hardening on their hearts until the fullness of the Gentiles come in, okay? And so, because they refuse to believe in Jesus, God has put this blindness over them, God has put this hardness over them, and He has opened up the gospel to the rest of the world. But there is coming a day when He is going to save a remnant of Israel because He promised Abraham that He would bless His people, that He would save His people. Now in the process of it, we know that in the wilderness, did every Jew see the promised land? No. There were some that were disobedient, that were in unbelief, and they did So we know that God never promised Abraham, 
I am going to save every one of your seed. Right? That's not what the promise was. But God did promise Abraham that I'm going to bless you, I'm going to make you a great nation, I'm going to bring you into a land, I'm going to do all of this. But He puts a a halt to that for a little while, if you will. Look at Romans chapter chapter 11, verse 1 through 5. Paul says, I ask then, has God rejected His people? Well, by no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. What's Paul saying here? I'm a Jew. So God has not rejected His people because look at me. Here I am. Alright? So that's first and foremost. But then in verse 2 he says, God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew, Do you not know what the Scripture says of Elijah? So here's the example that he gives of the fact that even though God has put a partial blinding and a partial hardness on them, He's not rejected them. Here's the example that he gives. Do you not know what the Scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to the God against Israel. And here's what Elijah said to God. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left and they seek my life. Does anybody here remember the context of this? Who is they? Who are the ones that they have killed your prophets? Who are the ones that they now seek my life, Elijah's life? Israel. Israel. The seed of Abraham. So keep that in mind as we continue reading. And then verse 4. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal or the false god that they worshipped. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Here's what Paul is saying. Yes, God, just like half of Israel or more back then, more than half, had turned away from God and was killing God's people and was even trying to kill Elijah, one of God's greatest servants, even though that was happening, God said, I've got 7,000 people of the seed of Abraham that have not bowed their knee to Baal. I've got 7,000 people that I have chosen to keep as a remnant and they are not going to bow their knee to anyone except me. He uses that as an example to say, even so today, in verse 5 again, at the present time, there is a remnant of God's chosen people chosen by grace. Now skip down with me to the same chapter to verse 25 for sake of time. Look at verse 25 through 29. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. So it's a mystery, right? And here's the mystery. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. What does it mean by all Israel? Does that mean every seed of Abraham? He's talking about the remnant, all right? He's still talking about the ones that he has chosen that said... I am going to save this group. Why is He going to do that? Well, look at what He says. And in this way all Israel will be saved as it is written. The Deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. 
And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. Here talking about the Gentiles, me and you. So as far as the gospel goes, they've actually become enemies of God. Why? For your sake. So that now you have the opportunity. The gospel now goes to you. But as regards election or God's choosing, as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers because of the promises that He made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now look what he says in verse 29. Here's the reason why he chooses a remnant and he chooses to save at the end of time, focusing on Israel. For the gifts and the calling of God are what? What does it mean to be irrevocable? God has made a promise. Never promised He's going to save every one of them. But He did promise Abraham that He was going to save His seed. And so there He is going to come back after this partial blindness and this partial hardness is lifted, which we believe takes place when the 144,000 are chosen. You remember that? That's when we believe this partial hardness and this blindness is at least beginning to be lifted. And then, as it is lifted, we see the focus of the ministry on the Jewish people. And so that's sort of what we get to see in this. Another scripture to look at. Look at Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 37. Another calling of God and a promise of God that's important for you to understand why God is going to put so much, so much focus on Israel in these last seven years. Notice what God says to the people of Israel in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 37. Thus says the Lord, If the heavens above can be measured... Can the heavens above be measured? Has anybody ever been able to do that yet? They believe that right now the observable universe, that means just what can be seen by their, by their great telescopes, all right, is 90 billion light years from one side to the other. That's just the observable universe. In other words, as far as they can see from one side to the other, it would take you 90 billion light years to go from one side to the other. To put that into context for you, what's the speed of light? 186,000 miles per second. 186,000 miles per second. If you could travel at 186,000 miles per second, it would still take you 91 billion years at that speed to travel from one end of the observable universe to the other. Now that's science, people. That ain't me. That's what science tells us today, alright? So, now think about what God is saying here. If the heavens above can be measured, and the foundations of the earth below can be explored, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. What's God saying? <laughs> Thank you. That's, that's just layman's terms right there. 
it ain't going to happen. It ain't going to happen. God is saying that come what may, I am going to fulfill my promise to Israel. Period. I'm going to make it happen. All right. So again, this is the reason why seeing the ministry to the Jews and to the people of Abraham is so important at the end of time. All right. So basically, that's what you have there. Israel is going to be saved exactly like God said. And in Revelation chapter 11, we see a continuing plan of a focus toward the Jewish people, especially in Israel. Now, in, in Revelation chapter 11 verse 1, what we have here is that, remember this is written in 90 A.D. The temple was destroyed by the Romans when? Anybody know? 70 A.D. You're very close. 70 A.D. So this, so this is written, John gets this vision 20 years after the temple has been destroyed, leveled. There's nothing left except the western wall. That's it. Alright? And so, John gets this vision of a temple. And basically what he sees here in verse 1, he says, Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise up and measure the temple of God. Measure the altar of God. And measure those who worship there. And so he's told here that you're going to, you're going to go now and you're going to measure the temple. Now the reason why that's important is because when, God, when John gets his vision, there is no temple. So what does that likely suggest to us is going to be present in these last seven years of tribulation? A temple. And so again, one of the things that we are looking for and one of the things that we believe is going to take place in the end times, specifically the last seven years of the earth as we know it, there is going to be a temple rebuilt in Jerusalem. Now one thing that's significant today is that right now, they in 2018, I think in um, December of 2018, I think it was, they built the altar that will go into the new temple. It sits outside of the walls of Jerusalem right now today. Right now. They dedicated it in December of 2018 and they have been performing sacrifice on it. Alright? Now the temple is not built yet. And as a matter of fact, Jews have not been allowed to pray even on the temple mount for many years. But do you know some significant things that have happened in just the last uh, three or four years? Jews have started to be allowed to pray again on the Temple Mount. Another thing that has been going on for several years now is there is also an organization called the Temple Institute. You can look it up, Google it. Um, the Temple Institute is a group that, of Jews that have come together and their primary purpose is to make the plans for the building of the third temple on the Temple Mount. Now, that's going to be a major problem because right now Muslims have their most holy spot or their third most holy spot on the Temple Mount. Alright? And so there is going to be a lot of, a lot of war that's going to take place in order for this to happen. But the pieces are in place and we already see things happening that we would think... What do Muslims do to people of other religions? 
That's right. And yet we're seeing them being allowed to begin to pray on their temple mount, which they used to get arrested for. And so I believe you're seeing pieces put in place that begin to move us to see in this direction that there is likely in some distant future, maybe near, maybe long ways off, I don't know, but the pieces are at least in place for this to become a reality. All right? But you remember from Daniel chapter 9, in the, in the seven years, the first thing that happens is the Antichrist rises up. He makes, he looks like a, everybody wants him when he first comes up. When he first comes up, I mean, he, he is, he brings a false peace to the world. He comes up and he makes a covenant with the Jews. And for the first three and a half years is what Daniel chapter nine tells us. For the first three and a half years of this seven year period, he allows them to sacrifice, to worship, and basically Jerusalem becomes a place to where all the Jews flock back to because of what they're allowed to do in their religion, in their homeland, the promised land that God promised Abraham, and they have all flocked back to this place. And so now in this time, but, but you remember what happens after three and a half years? What does the Antichrist do? He stops all the sacrifice, all the worship, and He takes out of the Holy of Holy anything that they would worship and sacrifice to. And who instead, and what does He instead put in its place? Himself. Himself. And He sets up an image in this place and says, everybody in the world will now worship Me. And if they don't worship Him, what happens? They die if they don't get the mark of the beast. And we'll, we'll get into that in Revelation chapter 13. But again, the point that you're going to see here is that what I believe you're seeing in Revelation chapter 11 is you're seeing the ministry toward the Jews that's taking place in um, the first three and a half years and then we see what happens in the last three and a half years as we look at this. So with that said, I want you to go uh, with me back to Reve- Revelation 11. Let's read verse 1 again. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff. And I was told, rise up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But, notice what he says in verse 2, do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out for it is given over to the nations and they will trample the holy city for how long? 42 months. Now what is 42 months divided by 12? Three and a half years. Alright? So here's your first part where he says, for three and a half years, the Gentiles, that's what the outer court was, it was the Gentile court, they could go no further. The nations will now be given authority to trample over all of the people of God. And, and so that's what you see happening right here. So he tells him, he says, go out and measure this. Make sure that you understand there is going to be a temple that is going to be built but don't measure the Gentile court because it's going to be given over to the nations and they're going to trample it for three and a half years. And so that's a little bit of the ministry or a little bit of what you see is going to happen in this time period. All right. But then go with me to the next part in verse 3. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses. So here we see that 
There is going to be, in this seven-year period, there's going to be two witnesses. Now, what does a witness do? What, what is the purpose of a witness? Okay, so if we're in court and I call a witness, that witness responsibility is to tell the truth over something they know to be factual, right? They have seen it, they have experienced it, and so God puts two witnesses here during this time that the Gentiles are trying to trample this place. So here's what we can kind of get from this. More than likely what you're seeing happening is in the first three and a half years we have the temple, we have worship going, Jews are flocking back. But then in the second three and a half years when the Antichrist rises up and he begins to turn his back on the Jews and he begins to set himself up in here and the nations come in for the next three and a half years and they're allowed to trample over all of this that, that God has done in this. All right, So that's kind of what we see happening. But during this time, there are two witnesses that God puts in place and notice what they are going to do. They are going to prophesy for 1260 days. Now what is 1260 days divided by 30? 1260 days, because Jewish calendars were 30-day months. So let's take a month, which is 30 days, do 1260 divided by 30. You get 42. 42 months, and what did we say 42 months divided by 12 months in a year was? Three and a half years. So I believe what you have is the first three and a half years that basically we have this peace that goes on. Jews are flocking to it. Then for the 1260 days or for the other 300, uh, for the other three and a half years, we have everything turns on the Jews and everything turns on the people of God. And now the beast and the Antichrist has risen up and all of this is taking place in there. And so, Notice some things about these witnesses in verse 3. The first thing, they've been granted what? Authority. They've been granted authority. What is authority? That's right. They have power, right? They have power. People will have to answer to them. They will be accountable to them. So these people are granted authority by God because notice they are my two witnesses. They're God's witnesses. And so they've been granted authority. And one of the things they've been granted authority for is to testify to something, to the truth of something. All right. And so what do we know that they're testifying to? Well, notice what he says next. They will do what? They will prophesy. Well, in... This context, prophesy simply means to speak the truth of God. That's what a prophet did. A prophet came to the people of the world and said, Thus says the Lord. That's all a prophet did. A prophet wasn't necessarily somebody with some special gift to be able to tell the future. Now, did future, were future events involved in prophecy? Many times, yes. But that's not the heart of prophecy. The heart of prophecy is just simply, thus says the Lord. And that is prophecy. And so they have the authority to, for, for 1260 days to preach the truth of God, to testify as a witness to the truth of God. And that's important 
Because during this time, the Antichrist is rising up and he's claiming himself to be the Savior of the world. And many are believing it. Many are taking this mark. Many are following him. Many love him, especially the world. But now during the same time, there are two witnesses that are given authority to testify to the truth. All right, And they prophesy. And they do it, notice what it says next, for 1260 days, clothed in sackcloth. Now back in this day and time, to do something in sackcloth recommend, um, recommended, uh, represented humility. It represented um, mourning, if you will. And so here we have two authority figures from God that are preaching the truth of God during this time, and yet they're doing so in humility. They're doing so in mourning because of all that they see around Him. And so they are pleading with people to turn from their sin, to give glory to God, to follow God, because that's the heart of everything that the gospel does, is it wants to turn people from sin unto God. And so here we have two witnesses, and they've been given authority to do this during this time. So here's some next things that we learn about them in verses 4 through 6. We learn a little bit about who they are. In verse 4 he says here, These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. There you go. That's who they are. Does that help you? Two trees, two lampstands. It probably don't help you much, but you want to know who it did help? John and any Jew that knew prophecy of old. Go with me to Zechariah chapter 4. This is the reason why it don't mean anything to you because you're not a Jew and you're not as familiar with, with Jewish text as they would have been. Zechariah is the second to last book of the Old Testament, I think. Yeah. So if you find Malachi, the very last book in the Old Testament, just go one book back, you'll be in Zechariah and go to chapter 4. We'll read the whole chapter real quick just so you can get an idea and I'll sum it up for you so that you don't have to try to dig too deep into it. But verse 1 of chapter 4 says, And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me up, like a man who was awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, What do you see? And I said, I see, and behold, a lampstand all of gold with a bowl on the top of it, and seven lamps on it, with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl, and the other is on the left of the bowl. And I said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. Then he said to me, This is the word to, of the Lord to Zerubbabel, Not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you? O great mountain before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace and grace to it. Now let me sum that up for you. Here's what's happening. We are looking at the rebuilding of the second temple. 
This is after the Babylonians have came in and sacked Jerusalem, Jerusalem and there is stone on top of stone and everything is destroyed. And now Zerubbabel, who was the governor of the Jewish people that have returned, he has been charged with the responsibility to rebuild the temple of God. Nehemiah, if you remember, had been charged with the responsibility to rebuild what? The walls of Jerusalem. So Jeremiah, Nehemiah comes in, he rebuilds the walls. Zerubbabel comes in and he re, he's charged with rebuilding the temple. Now Zerubbabel looks and there is a mountain of rocks that are piled on top of each other and what do you th- and not only that but when you go back and you read uh, Nehemiah and these other scriptures that were written in this time period we see they faced a lot of opposition many people were trying to come against them to keep them from rebuilding this temple but here Zechariah the prophet of the Lord has been given a vision to tell Zerubbabel something you tell him about this vision and here's what it means It means that not by might and not by power, but by my Spirit, you're going to accomplish what I'm calling you to do. And then notice what he said again in verse 7. He says, Who are you, O great mountain? Here he's looking at the mountain of stones of the old temple that's been destroyed. All right, Who are you, O mountain, before Zerubbabel? You shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone. What's the top stone? What does he mean there? In layman's terms, y'all tell me, what do you think you mean? Huh? The, the top stone, the capstone, the, the finish. In other words, he's going to finish this work even though right now it looks like a mountain of rubble. Can you imagine? You remember how they talked about the glory of the temple? And yet now here he's looking at it and he says, Zerubbabel is going to bring forward the top stone amid the shouts of grace, grace to it. And in verse 8, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These seven are the eyes of the Lord which range throughout the whole earth. Then I said to him, What are these two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand? And a second time I answered him and said to him, What are these two branches of the olive trees which are beside the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured out? And he said to me, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my Lord. Then he said, These are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. You'd have to read the entire book to get all the pieces, but let me give you the let me give you the summary of it. Basically, the two lampstands and the two trees represent the two anointed people that God has said by my spirit and my power they're going to accomplish what I sent them to do and no one and nothing will stop them. No matter how big the task looks. In this day and time the two people were Zerubbabel the governor and Joshua the high priest. And those two people were the two olive trees that he saw in the lampstand. So now go back with me to Revelation chapter 11. When John reads this and when John sees this, he understands. You know why he understands? 
(laughs) He knows Zechariah. He remembers the story of the rebuilding of the temple. He remembers the ones and the, and the job that they had before them and all the opposition they faced and the task that was before him that looked like a great mountain. And he remembers all this. And he remembers that there were two anointed people that God said, not by might or power of man, but by my spirit, by my power. That's what the, the tree, that's what the oil was that was continuously running from that big bowl was that God just continuously supplies the power. It never runs out until they accomplish the purpose that they are there for. All right? Now, Revelation chapter 11, verse 4, this is where he tells John, who understands this, who they are. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Again, Pointing him back to Zechariah. See, that's another thing I want to get across to you. Yes, the Scriptures can be hard to interpret. But the more Bible knowledge you have, the more you would be like John and you would go, I've seen that. I know where, I know where that has already been interpreted. And so because of that, we can now go back to Zechariah and say, there's our interpretation right there. So, who are the two witnesses? Well, here's what we know. They are two people that God is going to anoint with His power, His strength, and His Spirit to stand before an insurmountable task that looks like no one could accomplish it. And yet, they will accomplish it. And they will lay the capstone when they finish the task that is set before them. And so these two witnesses, first off, are two people that God is going to anoint. And some people say that this is um, Enoch and Elijah. Now the reason they say that is because Enoch and Elijah were the two people that never what? They never died. God just took them up. And so there are some that believe that Enoch and Elijah may come back and actually be um, the witnesses during this time that preach and testify. Could be, we don't know. Some people say it's Moses and Elijah. And the reason why they say that is because if you look down at their powers, look at what they're able to do in verse, um, verse 5. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. <laughs> I mean, you think about it. Somebody don't like what they have to say and they come up and try to shoot them. And before they can pull the trigger, and consumed. Like dragon's breath, basically. Alright? And so, if you remember, Elijah had that power, not from his mouth, but he called it down from heaven to consume his enemies. And you can go back and read about that, I think in 1 Kings, I believe is where that is. But then you can also go on and you can see in um, the next part of verse 5, he says, um, if anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. Verse 6, they have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. That reminds you of anybody in the Old Testament? Who else? Who else shut the sky so that it did not rain for... Seven years. Elijah did. That's exactly right. Until he prayed and called and the rain came. Again, you read about that, I think, in 1 Kings 18 or 19, I believe is where that is. But that was what he did. And you know, another thing to look at here is 
This, I think, could be saying to us that in the last three and a half years, there may be no rain on the earth. Specifically, I believe we can say for certain that at least in Jerusalem and the Holy Land, that there is no rain for three and a half years because it says that they are able to do this for all the days that they prophesy, which we know earlier was 1260 days or three and a half years. So we might be able to say for, th- for the last three and a half years there will be no rain. Maybe. And then notice what else we see here in the last part of it. And they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood. Who did that? Moses. Alright. And to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. Who did that? So there what you see here is you can see that it could be. And not only that, but do you remember whenever Jesus was transfigured on the mount and Peter and uh, James and John were looking up and who did they say Jesus conversing with? Moses and Elijah. And so again, there, there are reasons to believe that it very well could be that God is going to send back Moses and Elijah during this time to prophesy to the people in His authority with His power while the Antichrist has risen up with great power and great authority of Satan, right? While he rises up, on one side of it we see Satan's power and great authority. On the other side of it we see God's power and great authority and they're crying out to the world in sackcloth and, um, and in humility to repent, turn from your sin, trust in the Lord. And so whether or not this is Moses and Elijah, we don't know. Could just be two people that God empowers and anoints. We don't know. But we do know that these are two witnesses that God has ministering specifically to the Jewish people during this time. Now in verse 7, go with me. And when they have finished their testimony, so just like we saw Zerubbabel, he's going to lay the capstone. Guess what? These guys are going to finish their work. They will finish. Nothing's going to stop them from finishing this testimony. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit, this is the Antichrist, we'll find out more about him in Revelation chapter 13. But just for now, take my word that this is the Antichrist. But when they finish their testimony, the Antichrist that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them, but not before. Only after they have finished their testimony will He be allowed to kill them. And then notice what happens next in verse 8. And their dead bodies will lie in the streets of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt where their Lord was crucified. Where is this place? Is this Sodom? Is this Egypt? Where is it? That's right. It's where the Lord was crucified. But symbolically it's called. Now here's another thing that it's hard. It's hard about apocalyptic literature sometimes because you don't know what to take literally. Like, do we take literally that these guys breathe fire out of their mouth and consume somebody? Well, that's a good question. There are, there are many people that interpret revelations symbolically, basically all the way through. We believe primarily that it should be trans, uh, should be interpreted literally unless something specifically tells us that this is meant to be symbolic or this is meant to be figurative. 
And so you'll see it, like for instance, look with me in verse in chapter 12, verse 1. What do we see the first few words that say there? And a great sign appeared in heaven. A sign. Here we see that what we're going to read about in Revelation chapter 12 is a sign. It's not something that literally is going to happen. It's a figurative picture. It's, a literal, it's not a literal picture. So, so again, I believe that unless the Bible specifically tells us that it's meant to be interpreted symbolically, we interpret it literally. So here we are talking about Jerusalem, but symbolically it is Sodom and Egypt. Do you know why? Because for the last 1260 days, the Gentiles and the world has been given permission to trample all over it. What does that mean about the sinfulness of, of this place? Jerusalem has turned into Sodom, Gomorrah, or Egypt before the Israelites were delivered, a place of oppression, a place of slavery, a place of uh, great sin. And so symbolically, it's Sodom and Egypt, but their dead bodies are going to lie in the street of Jerusalem during this time. And then... Notice in verse 9, For three and a half days some of the people and the tribes and the languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies. Not just Jerusalem, not just the Jews, not just the people here, but people from nations, tribes. How are they going to do that? Now John probably didn't understand that back then, right? But today we understand it. Today we can look at it and say, don't you think CNN and Fox News is going to be all over this? <laughs> I mean, you're not going to be able to turn your TV on without seeing all this taking place um, in Jerusalem specifically. And for three... I think it said for three days. Let me go back to it again. For three and a half days, some of the people's tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and they will refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. Man, they hate these people. You know why? Because they're preaching repent, repent, repent. And they don't want to repent. Quit telling me what to do. We don't believe in your God. We don't believe like you believe. Quit, quit trying to make us live the way that you want to live. And they hate these two witnesses. So they, they won't even allow them to be placed in the tomb. And then verse 10, And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, and make merry and exchange presents. What does that tell you? They're going to throw a party, ain't they? I mean, people are going to celebrate when these two guys are gone. And you know, it probably makes sense. I mean, they have stopped the rain. <laughs> they have... The, anybody that tried to come against them? They plagues as often as they desired throughout... I mean, you, you see all the things that they were able to do in the hopes of not just to punish people, in the hopes that they would see the error of the way, that they would turn, that they would repent, that they would come back to God. But they're going to throw a party when they're gone. And then you see at the end of verse 10, because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But something great happens. After three and a half days, a breath of life from God enters them. The world thought they killed them. They celebrated. They thought they were gone. And then the next thing they know, 
A breath of life from God enters them and they stand up on their feet. Listen, they've been laying dead for three and a half days. And they stand up. And they stand to their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. There you have your own... Um, personal rapture right there. And their enemies watched them go up to heaven. And at that hour, at that moment, there was a great earthquake. And a tenth of what? The city. Where are we talking about? Jerusalem. So we're talking about specifically Jerusalem, not the world. Again, the focus is on the Jewish people. Alright? So a tenth of Jerusalem fell. And 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest, again talking about Jerusalem, Jewish people, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. He has just accomplished His purpose. It took a lot to get there, but the gifts and the callings of God are what? Irrevocable. No matter what it takes. No matter what it takes... This is going to be accomplished. And they gave glory to the God of heaven. That's the point of it all. That's the point of all of our curse. That's the point of all of um, the things that happen to us in this world is it's always God saying, come back to me, come back to me, come back to me, return to me. All right. And then notice what it says in verse 14. The second woe has passed. This is all part of the second woe in the sixth trumpet. And behold... The third woe is soon to come. And in verse 15, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to You, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, because you have taken your great power, you have begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged came. And the time for rewarding your servants and the prophets and the saints came. And the time for rewarding those who fear your name, both small and great, came. And the time for destroying the destroyers of the earth came. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of His covenant was seen within His temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. (laughs) So, here's what we can take from this. Number one, God always keeps His promises. Even if it was... 6,000 years ago to a man named Abraham. And even if it's 6,000 years from now, 10,000 years from now, God is going to keep His promise. The same is true for you and me. He has promised us so much in Jesus Christ. And no matter what it takes, He is going to keep His promise. No matter what it takes. Even if it means suffering on our part. Y'all tracking with me? He is going to keep His 
promise. That's the first thing. Another thing that we can see is that God is the one who gives life. Even when the world thinks they've killed you. Even when the world thinks that they've took you out. And they're celebrating. As far as they are concerned, that's the end for these guys, right? But when God says, get up, guess what you're going to do? <laughs> it's just that simple. Life is not in our power to give or take away. Life is in God's power and God's power alone. So that's another thing we learn from that. We also learn that giving glory to God in repentance and faith is the goal of all suffering. The goal of everything that God throws at us is, is the goal of it is to turn sinners from their sin to repentance, to give Him glory. How do I know that? Well, notice the end result of verse 13. Notice what he said, At that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake. The rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The goal. But notice what happens in Revelation chapter 16, verse, um, verse 9. They were scorched by fierce heat. They cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues, and they did not repent and give Him glory. So there again, you see, the point was what? What was the point? Repent. Give God glory. Why? Go with me to Romans chapter 1 real quick. We're coming to a close. Look at Romans chapter 1, verse 18 and 19. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power, His divine nature, they have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they're without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. So again, what's the problem? They refuse to turn from sin and give glory to God. They refuse to honor Him. They refuse to give Him thanks. They refuse to follow Him. And every bit of this is pointed toward the fact that God is only going to accept you one way. And if you don't turn that away, you are going to be completely under His wrath throughout all eternity. And so, the next thing that we learn is that the nations are going to rage. And they're going to rage more and more and more and more. And they're going to turn away from God and away from God. And they're going to hate the people of God so much that they move to a point that they trample the people of God and anybody that stands for God. But... In verse 18 of Revelation 12, the nations can rage all they want, but His wrath is going to come. And you know what else is going to come? The time for judgment is going to come. You know what else is going to come? 
the time for the rewarding of His servants, for His prophets and His saints is going to come. For rewarding those who fear Your name, both great and small, that time is going to come. And then finally, the time is going to come to destroy all the destroyers of the earth. He ain't talking about global warming here. Destroy all the sinful people of the world, of the world because it is because of sin that the world is cursed the way that it is. It is because of sin that the world is being destroyed. And He is going to destroy. And this is the time that it all comes to pass. But not until He has finished His promise of saving the remnant of Jews that He is going to save, and not until those 144,000 call in all the Gentiles that are coming. But it is my belief that not many, if any, will be saved after this point right here. This point is the end of salvation. Because what you read from here on out is they did not repent. They did not repent. And guess what? If you don't repent, there ain't no salvation. There ain't no salvation. That's another point that we get from this. God demands repentance. One way or the other, we're going to repent. That's pretty important right there because how many of us still live today and not repent? And we don't understand. God demands repentance. It's not, a, it's not an option. He don't come to you and say, well, I sure, I, I'm going to save you and I sure hope, I sure hope you'll repent. That's not the way this works. No, He comes to you and His Holy Spirit works with you and works with you. And every time He reveals something to you, it is our responsibility to repent of the things in our life that do not belong. So God demands repentance is another thing that we learn from that. And then finally in verse 19, then God's temple in heaven was opened and the ark of His covenant was seen. And you remember what I told you in between the sixth seal and the seventh seal? After the ministry of the Jews the Gentiles that are saved, and the vision that we get in heaven. You remember that? We kind of see that same vision here between the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet. Ministry to the Jews through the two witnesses, um, the result of their ministry, and then a vision into heaven and what's taking place there. And that's what you get there. Then God's temple in heaven was opened and the Ark of the Covenant was seen within His temple. Anybody want to know where the Ark of the Covenant is today? I think I can interpret that right and say it's in heaven. The Ark of the Covenant was seen within His temple, and there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. And then next week, we're going to get into um, the, the, the details of these ministries, the details of, of how they trample the Jews and what the Jews are going to have to do, and this battle that takes place between the Antichrist and the Jewish people. We're going to get into the one world economy, uh, the one world government. We're, go we're going to get into the details all the way up to chapter 17, and then we're going to see the seventh trumpet finish out with everything that comes with the seventh trumpet. All right. Who all don't have a clue what we just talked about? I know I've just wasted five years. Five years? How'd you waste five years? Well, I've been watching Oak Island. I sure did think the Oak Island. 
I've been watching that too, and I've been thinking the same thing. <laughs> That's hilarious. Is that what it was? Nine years. I've been watching it ever since they started. So however long I've wasted, I don't know. Yeah. All right. Well, thank y'all so much for your time and your attention. I appreciate you hanging in there through the tough stuff and not getting discouraged. So um, don't walk out of here tonight um, thinking that all this is just way over your head. Um, take it as He gives it to you and um, take whatever little lessons you learn out of it and apply it to your life. That's the best thing you can do.